welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Colorado Gardener. My name is Christy McGowan. Slug chug. Garden gastropods prefer PBR. By Sandra Middleton. And this is from Green Prince, Autumn 2022 edition. Oh my God, Mom, someone littered in your garden, roared Lindsay after noticing a beer can near the raspberries she was sampling in my garden. How rude. That was me, I responded. Really? Her right eyebrow arched so sharply her head tilted sideways. I didn't know you drank beer. When I told her it was for the slugs, her incredulous eyebrow arched in silence. She surveyed the garden for more evidence of my diminishing mental faculties and the horrible creatures I claimed were devastating my garden. You know you have a problem, right? She only half teased. Yes, I agreed. Those monsters are eating me out of house and home. This craziness had not come lightly. I'd tried all kinds of slug solutions, including slug bait, diatomaceous earth, and nematodes, with only mild results. Those brazen critters even slipped over the copper tape surrounding my potato patch. That little electric jolt they got was more like a defibrillator that energized them into renewed life than the intended deterrent. Or, better yet, electrocution, I hoped for. They consumed all of the soft material of the potato plants, leaving a skeleton of stalks and leaf veins. They slimed my raspberries, devastated my lettuce and tucked themselves in to my cabbage heads and ate their fill. I'd had enough and needed more information so I could eradicate them for good. I learned they are part of the mollusk family that includes snails, also octopi, and that a group of them is called a cornucopia. That doesn't really fit my Thanksgiving idea of the word. The scientists did much better with the slug's cousins, the snails. They call a group of snails an escargotois, much more fitting. So French and edible, yet brutal. Another word for a group of snails is a rout. That fits slugs better than cornucopia, especially considering a little-used definition of the word that refers to an assembly who move toward committing an illegal act, which would constitute a riot. Yes, slugs ravishing my garden are committing illegal acts. I also learned slugs are nocturnal. Me, not so much. 
But I did my best to get up early and slip into my crocs for the early morning hunting patrol with a sharp stick and tweezers. The stabbing and squishing was satisfying, but time-consuming. Then I heard beer was the trick. So I grabbed tall cans of the cheapest beer I could find. Initially, I set up my beer garden with bush beer. The skinny-dipping beer party was laid out free of charge. But those naked mollusks just snubbed their antenna at me and left viscous trails over half-eaten leaves. Instead of taking the plunge in the yeasty pool and drowning, those slugs hid under the beer trays while a white foam formed on top of the watery solution. Thinking they wanted something earthier, I set out trays of root beer. Again, nothing. Nada. After trying other beer brands, I learned those terrestrial gastropods are picky beer connoisseurs. In my garden, Pabst Blue Ribbon is the preferred choice. It didn't win that blue ribbon in 1894 for nothing. I filled trays, pie pans, lids, anything I could find to hold the PBR. I put them everywhere. The next morning, I checked the traps. Some only had a few carcasses in them, but others were filled to the brim with dozens of slugs, pickled in a slimy sludge. I had found their kryptonite. Anxious to get those buggers, each morning I threw my bathrobe over my jammies and slipped into my crocs. One day, my husband Jeff heard me walking to the garage for my hunting tools. Honey, look at all these liquor store receipts, he said as he followed me. You might want to reevaluate your drinking, he reasoned. You know I don't drink beer, I replied. It's the slugs. He stopped when he saw the case of 16 ounces. You're hiding beer in the garage? For the slugs, I explained. Grabbing a few cans and heading out the garage door, I yelled back, I'm going to get those suckers. Good morning, suggested my neighbor. My blue bathrobe flared open as I spun around to find her taking the trash out before work. Oh, good morning, Ruth, I replied as her eyes fell to the open beer in my right hand and two others sticking out of my row pockets. Just going on slug patrol, I volunteered. Hey, are you doing anything with your rhubarb? I'd hate to see it go to waste before the dang slugs get at it. Uh, uh, no, no, she stammered as she quickened her step back to her door. Help yourself. Thank you, I saluted her with the hand, holding my half-empty beer. I checked another trap. Oh, look at the party you guys had last night, I mumbled to the carnage while I dumped and refilled the tray. I pulled another beer from my pocket as Ruth headed to her car. She darted a nervous glance in my direction. Thanks again, I called out as I popped the tab, raised the can, 
and poured another PBR for my slimy friends to chug down on their last call in my beer garden. My Maple Mishap by Amelia Grant. And this is from Green Prince Archives. I have passionate opinions about what I want in a garden. One of my lifelong must-haves is a Japanese maple. It started when my husband and I first married. We lived in his urban townhouse. The tiny yard was mostly concrete, but did sport a beautiful Japanese maple that was about 10 feet tall. After a year or two, we bought a house in the suburbs. I did not want to leave the Japanese maple. As luck had it, it was November, and several seeds had fallen from the tree and sprouted. I potted several seedlings, kept them in the garage until spring, and tended them in pots the following year. By autumn, three were still alive, each about six inches tall. I decided to plant them close together so I wouldn't step on them. Over the next 17 years, they grew into a beautiful, multi-trunked Japanese maple, about the same size as the original one. My husband retired and we moved yet again, this time in early spring. There were some seedlings under the maple. They didn't have leaves yet but I was sure they were more Japanese maples. I potted them up and put them on the truck to our new home. A few weeks later, to my horror, I discovered they were red maples. I still don't have a Japanese maple in my new home. Pulverized Poppies by Stephanie Heron And this is from Green Prince Archive. My mother believed in mass plantings of bold colors. One of her favorites was a gorgeous patch of red oriental poppies. Their flamboyant crepe paper petals and mysterious black velvet interiors always fascinated me. So one year I decided to duplicate their magic in my own garden. I sowed seed and new feathery shoots soon appeared. Now I had to be patient for a year, as my darling poppy children matured to blooming size. My husband was also a gardener, but we had separate growing spaces. He was vegetable man, and I was flower gal. While I was excited about poppies, he was in high spirits over his new fancy multitasking rototiller. So it was no surprise to see him till his garden until it was the consistency of cornmeal. He offered to create more garden space for me, so I marked off an area adjacent to an established bed. I got home that night to find that my new flower bed was filled with teeny tiny chopped up poppy foliage. My poppy children were gone I don't usually hold grudges for long, but that winter seemed a bit chillier than usual. 
When the seed catalogs arrived in January, I again ordered packets for those striking crimson beauties. One morning, once milder days arrived, we both brought our coffee out to contemplate our garden plans. My eyes searched the site he'd cornmealed, and there before me lay the most beautiful, feathery green carpet of poppy fledglings. There were thousands of them. His tiller had broken small roots into many pieces, each of which had become a new plant. This would become a crimson carpet, surpassing all expectations. Flower Gal smiled at Vegetable Man. Life was good. That good old, very, very old garden advice. Over 2,000 years old. By David A. Bainbridge. And this is from Green Prince Archive. As an author... I often wonder what impact my years of researching and writing will have. My wife has observed that it seems to take about 30 years for the world to see what I see. In 1986, for example, I started writing about building with straw bales. And this year, straw bale construction is in the International Building Code. But hey, just 30 years, what have I got to complain about? Consider Fang Shangji, a remarkable Chinese agronomist from over 2,000 years ago. In about 10 BC, Emperor Chengdi sent Fang Shangji to Sanfu to learn how to improve yields for resource-limited farmers. Fan had practical experience in agriculture, was honored as a master teacher, and was a skilled observer, interviewer, and researcher. He traveled extensively, talking to farmers. After gathering all his information, he prepared a manual on high-yield agriculture. With information on plowing, sowing, soils, fertilizer, grafting techniques, crop rotation, intercropping, multiple cropping, mixed cropping, buried clay pot irrigation, and fermentation for food storage. The book he assembled was probably the first complete scientific agricultural monograph in Chinese history, and considerably more sophisticated than contemporary Greek and Roman works. Sadly, only fragments remain, but it is still useful today. Fan's approach was very scientific, discussing expected planting and harvest rates. He cited wheat yields of a thousand pounds per acre. The U.S. did not reach comparable wheat yields until 1906 and consistent yields this high until the 1940s. But the section of Shengji's manual that captured my attention the most 
was his description of buried clay pot irrigation. Make 210 pits per acre, each pit 24 inches across and 6 inches deep. To each pit, add 38 pounds of composted manure. Mix it well with an equal amount of earth. Bury an earthen pot of 1.5 gallons capacity, such as the grow oya or dripping springs oyas, in the middle of the center of the pit. Let its mouth be level with the ground. Fill the jar with water. Plant four melon seeds around the jar. Cover the jar with a tile. Fill the jar to the brink when the water level falls. At the time, I was working on desert restoration and dryland agriculture for the Drylands Research Institute at the University of California, Riverside. Intrigued, I soon had buried clay pots in the garden with a variety of crops. They worked even better than I expected. The slow flow of water through the clay walls is influenced by water use of the crop, becoming a very efficient demand response system. I later went on to do much more extensive research with the pots and have never failed to be impressed. Thank you, Feng Shengji. So, to my fellow authors, have hope. Perhaps 1,000 years from now, someone will uncover an ancient green prince, find a fragment of your story, and it will change their lives and help others around the world. How to Choose a Plant Based on Your Personality Type by Sarah Yang and this is from whowhatwhere.com Collecting and caring for houseplants isn't exactly a new thing, but in recent years, the idea of plant parenthood has really taken off. I think it even hit its peak during quarantine, when most of us were at home with a lot of time on our hands. For some people, taking care of their plants can be a fun hobby and a therapeutic experience. And, not to mention, a room full of plants just looks pretty good decor-wise, too. Maria Faia plant expert and host of Bloom and Grow Radio podcast, agrees on all of the above, especially the therapeutic part. She recently wrote a book, Growing Joy, The Plant Lover's Guide to Cultivating Happiness and Plants, which focuses on the power of plants and how they help you disconnect from the stresses of modern life and grow joy. In short, she's a firm believer that plants are a huge part of self-care. <laughs> Although I initially got into plants to make my home look beautiful, I stayed with this hobby because I realized plants were the number one wellness tool I had ever experienced when it came to living a calmer, more connected life, Faia says. If I could give everyone one tip that truly changed my life, it would be Look at a plant 
before you look at a screen. We are all so attached to our phones, apps, and screens that many of us don't even realize that we give ourselves no space or time for actual, original thought. And her new book has even more tips and ideas for using plants as a wellness tool. The fun thing about the book is there are over 60 different plant care slash self-care practices that span a wide variety of interests and levels of comfort. There are nature-based practices for those who want to be outside, and houseplant-based practices for those who prefer to be indoors. For plant nerds, I've got overviews of science-based theories and studies proving how and why plants make us happier. For fellow woo-woo women, I've got my favorite plant-inspired affirmations and even a planty song section. If you're intrigued and looking to add plants to your home to improve your well-being, Faia shared all her best tips with us below. How to choose a plant based on your personality type. To figure out your plant personality type, take the quiz on Faia's site and then read below. Mindful plant parents. They would love moisture-loving plants like a fern, prayer plant, orchid, or air plant that requires a lot of TLC. Low-key plant parents need drought-tolerant plants like a snake plant, ZZ plant, or monstera. Design-based plant parents should look at sculptural plants that look like statues, like a Raphidophora tetrasperma, mini monstera, or a fiddle leaf fig tree, only if they have bright light. Curious collector plant parents could have fun collecting different species of the same plant genus, like Hoya, Sansevieria, or philodendron. Urban farmer plant parents. They love to grow their own food. Try a six-inch pot of your favorite herb, or you can go big like I did with a six-foot indoor hydroponic grow tower. Top tips for plant care. Know your light. Faia says everyone's indoor lighting environment varies drastically based on your window orientation, what's surrounding or shading your home, and your general home location. So you really need to understand your specific lighting environment and pick plants that will thrive in that. Some quick rules of thumb. If windows are unobstructed, southern and western facing windows get the most light. Northern windows get the least amount of light. Use pots with drainage holes. Faia says that it's possible to care for a plant in a pot with no drainage holes, but she doesn't recommend this for beginners. Plants' roots need water, but also exposure to air. Water thoroughly, but not frequently. I think overwatering is one of the top ways beginners accidentally kill plants, Faia says. 
take a look at the roots. If you're trying to decide if your plant is dead or can be rescued, Faia recommends taking it out of its pot and looking at its roots. No roots equals no plant resuscitation. If the plant has no roots or the roots are brown and crispy, I would advise composting this plant, identifying what went wrong and getting a new one and trying again. Thank you for joining us for Colorado Gardener. My name is Christy McGowan. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.